Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Well, I'm thrilled today to be joined by a great American, the actor Henry Winkler, the Emmy Award-winning actor Henry Winkler, for a conversation about what's happening in our world. Um, Henry, you were born on October 30th, 1945, in New York, and your middle name was Franklin. Right. Tell us about that. Um, my parents came here. They uh, they had a six-week visa from Germany, and my father kept writing letters to the government asking for a week or a month extension, and thank goodness they got it. Uh, so my middle name is, uh, well, I was named after the president of the United States at that time, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. A titanic figure in the history of this country and world history. What did your father tell you about him growing up? How did he shape your world? Who was who was Franklin Roosevelt growing up? He was, you were born a few months after his death. Right. Born a month after the unconditional surrender of the Japanese Empire aboard the battleship. Right. At the beginning of a new era in American history. So I'm not sure that we talked a lot about the president. What we talked a lot about was the horror, the disbelief of what was happening and that my parents actually had to leave their country in order to start a new life. Uh, I never had grandparents. I never had aunts and uncles. All of my aunts and uncles were the uh, German Jews who landed in New York City um, safely, and they became the family. But for a, a, a real aunt and uncle, a real grandparent, I never had one. And of course, you returned to Berlin, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the conversation with a terrific series, Better Late Than Never, which seems like it would be one of the great gigs if you could get, if somebody would come to you and say, we're going to fly you all over the world. Henry Winkler, William Shatner, George Horman, and Terry Bradshaw seems like a fun group going all over the world and seeing things. A lot of, lot of, lot of majesty out there. I, I have to say that it was shocking that this was a job that we were paid to do this. We traveled all over Asia, all over uh, Europe uh, uh, for two seasons. And in Berlin, the task that I was given was to find my roots. And they had done research, the show had done research. And I wound up in front of the building that my father and his brother, Helmut, lived in and ran a business out of. In front of uh, the building was a silver uh, toastone, and it had my uncle's name on it. The first time I ever saw anything that close to my uncle, his name on it, his birth date. Uh, he was taken to the concentration camps from that spot, and what camp he went to and, and when he died. How did you feel standing there as an American 
in your 70s looking at that? I never really cared for my family. <laughs> my parents were um, uh, unduly strict. Uh, they were unduly blinded by I should be who they wanted me to be as opposed to who I was being there in front of them. And they never put the two together. So I didn't care about looking for my roots. I, 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 and then when I saw this toaster, I fell apart. I don't know why I was overtaken by an emotion I had no idea was in me. It was amazing. I am, you know, it's funny because in, in, in some ways there is such a parallel to the history of then and what Americans are doing now in allowing or not allowing people ha leaving uh, horror to come to the greatest country in the world. Uh, Jews were turned back and all of these people from all over the world, but you know, from South America are turned back. It, it, and we have enough country to be um, hospitable. When you look back now uh, from this vantage point in life, do you understand your father a little better? He wanted you to run the shop. You told him you wanted to be an actor. Right. And I suspect he wanted his son to have security. He was someone who had lost everything. Um, who came to America with a box of chocolates. And in that box of chocolates, as you shared the story, the gold, the family jewels in it, that he wanted his son to have security. Do you do you look back on him now after that experience uh, from this perspective on life and regard him a, a little bit differently? And I, and I say, and I ask that question as somebody who's 52, who's both a son and a father, and I think all fathers and sons have complicated relations at at some well i i have to tell you something Stephen. i promised myself and my wife that i would be a different parent than what i grew up with uh that when i i found in my life being a a, a parent listening a, a a heard child is a powerful child no matter what you're listening to gibberish or they have something very important to them to uh, to tell you. So hearing the child and seeing who's in front of you. Now, I respect my parents. I think it took an amazing amount of courage to leave your country, come to another country, try to start a new life. I have a respect for all of that. The I, It took me a long time to get over treating me in a way that I could never live up to, um, an expectation, um, not dealing with who was in front of them is the easiest way I can say. You, you were treated cruelly growing up, um, and you were somebody who had enormous difficulty in school, and you would later find out, not until you are Fonzie, that you're dyslexic. That's right. 
That's right. So no matter what they said, and not only that, but how about this? I would be grounded for not doing well. And I didn't do well because I was dyslexic, which is hereditary, which my parents gave me. So they're now grounding me for what they're responsible for. Maybe. And your father is calling you, and your father is calling you a dunderhund. Yeah, really, like a dumb dog. Yeah. Oh, they were lovely people. But um, it, it just, it, it made me crazy. And I listened to my children. I listen to them now. I listen to my grandchildren. And they are, what they say forms what my decision is about uh, what's going on. If you were 15 years old, if you can pull yourself back to that moment in time, yeah. and a stranger had walked up to you on a street, yeah, type of mystic that Bruce Springsteen sometimes talks about, and said, Henry Winkler, one day you will be the author of 38 books and counting. What would you have said to that person? You're crazy. I couldn't read. You know, uh, my joke is uh, when I when I speak publicly uh, that I I had a copy of uh, Tale of Two Cities, and I read the cover. That was it. I never got to the first page. Um, I did a a um, a uh, a paper in college at Emerson on Durkheim, Emil Durkheim, the the father of sociology. I read the table of contents. And I channeled what they must have meant to him or what he meant in the chapter, never, never turning the page from the table of contents. And I got a B. I just channeled what I thought the man was thinking. And so this learning difference, how, how elemental do you think it was to who you become? That's interesting because I will tell you, when I found out at 31 that I had dyslexia, the first thing I was, was so angry because all of that yelling, all of that bad feeling, all of that grounding, all of the punishment, the, the humiliation was for nothing because there was no way my brain literally was um, a wired differently. I wasn't getting it for all the tea in China. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to negotiate it. I'm going to figure this out. And then I thought, maybe I would not be here sitting talking to you if I did not have the struggle of fighting through this difference, this, this challenge. There's a word I want to ask you about that, that you have used repeatedly when talking about your childhood, and that word is humiliation. I was, you know, uh, it, it's funny. Um, I was just uh, putting the finishing touches on the autobiography. And one of the things I added was that uh, there was a, a comedian by the name of London Lee when I was growing up. And he was a great storyteller. He was on the Ed Sullivan Show. And one of his jokes I took um, wholeheartedly. I would sit in geometry for the fourth year, not passing. And he said, you know, I used to fantasize that my parents moved and left no forwarding address. 
And I swear to you, I had that fantasy. I would come home, open the door, they had moved, and I would have figured out how to eat. I would have figured out how to survive and not have to listen to them anymore. And what comes out of this many, many, many years later is a character that you imagine and create um, a children's character uh, with your collaborator, Lynn Oliver, named Hank Zipper. Yeah, and and he is, Hank is short for Henry. Zipser is short for, uh, is not short for, is the name of a woman, Ella Zipser, who lived on the fourth floor of my apartment building. And I thought it was, you know, like a zippy name. And um, I wrote what I knew. I could remember what it was like to be eight and fail at everything. And like, I, I don't want to be this. I don't, I don't think I'm stupid. I, I want to I wanna meet the sun. And I, man, I just couldn't for all the tea in China. And how does it make you feel now? Or do you ever really take a second to think about how many children these books have helped, and including my son? You know what? Oh, that makes me feel great. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, but I meet the children. I meet the parents wherever I am traveling. Somebody comes up to me and said, oh, my God, your books helped me. They were I, I realized I wasn't alone. How did you know me so well? Or the parents would say, would start crying um, and say to me, my, my son couldn't read, my daughter couldn't read, and they were able to negotiate your books, and they made them laugh. I'm telling you, I I, uh, I I don't know. It's like a volcano goes off in my head uh, when I hear that outside of my own family. I don't know that there is a better compliment in my entire existence. When you look back, the boy who is humiliated becomes a young man who struggles but also finds grit and determination and ambition right and has a passion tell us about that i think that the passion and ambition is separate from the grit that is starts to get baked in having to negotiate um keeping above water and not being able to uh, read or do math or spell or or any of that stuff but the ambition, I think, it, it comes, you're out, you cry, and probably in that cry is, hey, let's get going. And your journey takes you to Yale, yes, where you get a master's in theater yes, and in drama, yes. and you're on the stage. Take us back. What, what is it like for you? to walk out on a stage as a as a young man. What does that what does that mean to you? Well, you know, you learn your craft. I, I wanted to be really good at what I do. So training is important. That I got into the Yale Drama School, one of the best drama schools anywhere, is like crazy that they said yes, because twenty five start, eleven finished in my class, three were asked into the professional company. I made $172 a week. I was 
live in my dream. When I walked on the stage then, I was a shell of myself as an actor. I was trying to keep my head above water just in, you know, be having this feeling of being no good. And I was perverted. I was not the actor I was. I was the actor I thought I should be, which made me just all balled up in a, in a twisted thing of bones and sinews and I couldn't get out of my own way. And it took me from there to now to start being able to emerge um, who I am. I, I could not have done the, the character on Barry, Gene Cousineau, years ago. I, I, I would have just screwed it up completely. Thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so you never miss a video. Also, for more content just like this, please consider joining our warning premium community. You can find out more in the description below. When I have occasions to speak to college students, um, there will always be some percentage that come up after the class and they'll, and they'll want to really get deep into my career and my experience, almost as if they're taking notes on a plot point. You did this when you were 24 and I do this by 23 and they have a plan for their lives. A lot of these kids have had their lives curated from very, very early ages. Right. Standardized test training to, to get into the school. And, and the number one thing I say to them, I say, trust me on this. Um, and the older I get, the more appreciation I have for this, which is that you have no idea what's going to happen in your life. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. You're going to walk in some place that is completely accidental one day, and you might meet your spouse, who you'll spend the next 50 years with and have your family with. Um, there are a thousand things that may or may not happen. And, and so this plays out with you in your career. Um, you graduate at Yale. You go to California. You have enough money for, for one month. Um, I want to talk about the zeitgeist of that. I think going west to California from the East Coast, whether it was when I did it um, in the 1990s or when you did it in the 1970s, has a different meaning than it does today. But but you so even well, everything you're saying is true, and and that you don't know what's going to happen. I worried about. I still worry right now. Barry is over. What am I going to do? I, I'm, I'm scared out of my mind. But the one thing that is constant is you had a thought about what you want. You knew what you want. And that is the key. If you know what you want without ambivalence, every step you take, every time you brush your teeth, every um, bite you take of food is moving you where you want to go. If you don't know what you want to do, you're going to just flip-flop all over the place 
like you're blowing like a plastic bag in the wind up against a chain link fence. You talk about your parents earlier, and so you wind up as far as you can conceivably get in the United States from uh, them. You're in Los Angeles. Get a gig on the Mary Tyler Moore show within the within the month and week within the month within a week and within the month you are cast as Arthur Fonzarelli. Yeah, amazing. And I only have four lines, six lines, and I I you know they usually do thirteen episodes is an order um, for television at that time. I was in seven of the thirteen. And very shortly, I was in 13 of the 13. It was amazing. And all I did was change my voice. And that, it, uh, it was like there was a, um, a little treasure box, and I completely unlocked it just by changing my voice. And when you look back to that moment, Arthur Fonzarelli is in a windbreaker. Right. There is there is dispute over the leather jacket. Right. Can Fonzie even wear a leather jacket? Does that denote him as a criminal? And looking back from that moment in that conversation, do you wish you could have said, hey, someday this jacket's going to be in the Smithsonian? You know what? I didn't have the, the, first of all, I didn't have the wherewithal to say something like that. I didn't have the clout to say something like that. So then what do you do? Now I'm trained. Now I, I have the three years of Yale and the repertory theater under me, holding me um, as my foundation. So I have to wear this jacket. How do you be cool in a jacket like that? I, um, uh, I got these friends. And in what you've got, you take what you've got and you make lemonade out of that lemon of a jacket. Cool is not what I'm wearing on my back. Cool is coming from the inside out. People thought I was tall. You know, I told this story. I went down. Uh, I don't know if I'm able to say um, a curse word on your show, but uh, we're, down, we're, we're down in Dallas, 25,000 people. And they are now coming closer and closer and closer to the four. Ron Howard, Don Most. Anson Williams, me. At the other side of the 25,000 people are is, is our limousine. And I just, I use the character. Usually I do not um, use the character off the show. And I just said, hey, you're going to part like the Red Sea. And we're going to walk to our car. You're not going to touch us. And I'm telling you, 25,000 people, me. And we started walking. I, I'm not kidding. And somebody said, he is so cool. And then somebody else said, wow, he's so short. And I turned around and said, hey, you, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I swear to God. I, and then they said, oh, he, he's so short. You, I'm not sure. Hey, he is so cool. And we just kept walking, got in the car and drove away. There were two things that were shattered for me in my in my late 40s when I discovered them. The first I learned at Bruce Springsteen's uh, Broadway show was that the boss, not only could the boss not drive a stick shift, uh, yeah. the boss couldn't drive at all well into his 20s. Yeah. 
And and Fonzie can't actually ride a motorcycle. No, I can't. And, but I, I want to say now that you found out that that the boss can't drive stick. Yeah. Was that not one of the great shows you've ever seen? I I think it is the greatest live performance. Oh man, of any type that I've ever seen. It was I've seen I saw it twice. It was just it was just an extraordinarily moving um and I grew up in New Jersey about 15 miles from from where he grew up. And so there's this connection. It's a generation apart, but it was just extraordinary. And um and I and I thought for me, you know, I I you listen to it and he talks about his father and the relationships. He is a um he is an extraordinary artist. So I want us to listen to something together about the role of an artist in society. And and when this was made, you were a young man from October of 1963. And when we think about the poet, um, the poet will will be listening about is Robert Frost, but the person who delivered the speech, President Kennedy, his last major address, um, didn't live long enough to imagine a world where Bob Dylan would get a Nobel Prize in literature, that that music um, would be a forum of poetry, and that screenwriting in the 21st century would become a high art form as well. Right. Um, the literature so let's listen to this recording about the role of an artist in society and and then we'll we'll come back and and talk about that because you are certainly an artist and i imagine conceive of yourself as such the artist however faithful to his personal vision of reality becomes the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society and an officious state. The great artist is thus a solitary figure. He has, as Frost said, a lover's quarrel with the world. In pursuing his perceptions of reality, he must often sail against the currents of his time. This is not a popular role. If Robert Frost was much honored during his lifetime, it was because a good many preferred to ignore his darker truths. Yet in retrospect, we see how the artist's fidelity has strengthened the fiber of our national life. If sometimes our great artists have been the most critical of our society, it is because their sensitivity and their concern for justice, which must motivate any true artist, makes him aware that our nation falls short of its highest potential. I see little of more important to the future of our country and our civilization than full recognition of the place of the artist. If art is to nourish the roots of our culture, society must set the artist free to follow his vision wherever it takes it. We must never forget that art is not a form of propaganda. It is a form of truth. And as Mr. McLeish once remarked, a poet's there is nothing worse for our trade than to be in style. In free society, art is not a weapon, and it does not belong 
to the sphere of polemics and ideology. Artists are not engineers of the soul. It may be different elsewhere. A democratic society, in it, the highest duty of the writer, the composer, the artist, is to remain true to himself and to let the chips fall where they may. In serving his vision of the truth, the artist best serves his nation. And the nation which disdains the mission of art invites the fate of Robert Frost's hired man, the fate of having nothing to look backward to with pride and nothing to look forward to with hope. I look forward to a great future for America, a future in which our country will match its military strength with our moral restraint, its wealth with our wisdom, its power with our purpose. I look forward to an America which will not be afraid of grace and beauty, which will protect the beauty of our natural environment, which will preserve the great old American houses and squares and parks of our national past, and which will build handsome and balanced cities for our future. I look forward to an America which will reward achievement in the arts as we reward achievement in business or statecraft. I look forward to an America which will steadily raise the standards of artistic accomplishment and which will steadily enlarge cultural opportunities for all of our citizens. And I look forward to an America which commands respect throughout the world, not only for its strength, but for its civilization as well. And I look forward to a world which will be safe, not only for democracy and diversity, but also for personal distinction. Wow. What do you think when you listen to that? All right. I think, one, art sometimes is the only way a child can communicate with the world. America cuts the, the arts right out of its consciousness, and it is a, um, a crime against humanity. Uh, I detest a person who says, hey, you're an actor. You shouldn't be political. You shouldn't have a thought. What? What am I? I'm not a human being first. I'm not an American first. I was not born just like you. I chose this. You chose being a, a whatever you're doing. I, I don't think you don't have a thought. But that kills me. Um, it is so easy, especially at this second. People are looking to, to, for other people to tell them what to do. We're falling right into like a, the possibility of fascism and that fascism is going to bite these people who are looking to them to be leaders they're going to bite them right in the tush uh uh they're going to kick them right to the curb that's what i'm thinking and about 2000 other thoughts when you hear president kennedy what was his last major speech talking about these things? I, I think it is safe to say that the dialogue, the script, such as it is in our national life, has degenerated since then. There's, it's, it's, un, it's unthinkable 
that that a president of the United States in the modern era delivers this speech, and and we are lesser off for it. Oh, further, with, without a doubt, and not only that, but also when you you listen to some of the speeches we have heard, it is like they read the TV guide, and that's their source for vocabulary. That's their source or thought that there's no sense of I'm elected to take care of this country and all of the people in it. Now it is I am elected to make as much money as I can. And um, the the children who don't eat, um, let them be damned. Have you ever conceived of your craft and your artistry as a daily practice, as a practice of patriotism, in that it is every day an act of free expression, of yes. freedom of conscience and imagination. And none of these things are allowed or exist or flourish in autocratic or totalitarian society, Absolutely. where art and the artist are always the first targets because a danger to totalitarianism is the truth as expressed through art. I think about that all the time. I think about the people who are banning books got to where they are today because they had access to those very books. Uh, it, it, it is like insane. It's like we're trying to dumb our country down. I love our country. I am so proud to be an American. I have flourished as an American. Uh, and every day I get to do what it is I dreamt of doing since I was seven is because we live in a great country. But that country is, is, um, is, is really has to be very, very careful and delicate with itself because... I, I don't know. It, it's like we are anti-education and people are, uh, you know, you don't know to, you don't need to know things in order to keep the greatness of our country going, which is completely the opposite. When you listen to Kennedy talk, he talks about the role of the artist and he talks about his hope that one day that it will be recognized as important and honored as such, as much as business or politics. And there's a strike underway in Hollywood that I think is a lot, that I think is about a lot more than money. Um, the money is a big part of it. And it's the idea. Well, it's not just money. It's money to exist. These people, right. you know, their livelihood is on the line. And it's so interesting because the writer is the beginning and the end. I come to work. I have a script. The director comes to work. They're working off a script. The director of photography comes to work. They're working off a script. If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. On the stage. First time I ever heard that expression was Arnold Schwarzenegger when I worked for him when he was running for re-election and governor and he took it very seriously he was uh meticulous about his preparations for giving a 
public speech. When you look at this strike and you look at the issue, and really the issue is pauperizing the writers as the studios in this what's called the golden age of television um, have made record profits, but also spent record amounts of money, uh, sometimes frivolously, sometimes foolishly, like a lot of things, that falls downward, not upward. And so when you look at the strike right now and, and the role of art in the society, um, the golden age of television, um, that this is really art that is being expressed on the, on the screen on these shows. And I think that this is a enormously consequential strike because it is the first labor movement at the edge of the age of artificial intelligence. Right. Uh, that it speaks directly to the themes that John Kennedy talked about. Yeah, but uh, you know, the, this country worships the wrong P. Population has been moved aside for profit. That um, people are so obsessed with making money that they allow their neighbors to be cut in half by a weapon. When you think about that, about profit, I was, I was, I was watching Jeff Bezos out on his new his new yacht, um, which cost five hundred million dollars, and you know. And I'm I'm conflicted about it, right? You know, he he created this company, he made the money. If he wants to spend five hundred million dollars on a boat, it's his money. It's his boat. A lot of a lot of craftsmen, uh, a lot of nautical engineers made a piece of art, which is which is which is what that which is what that ship is. But on the other hand, uh, no one's taking any of this with them. When they when they get to the end of the when they get to the end of the line, and and really a life well lived is not a life about how many things you've accumulated. It's really about the measure and memory of your character. Yes, but the thing is that your life can include both. I do not. I do not. Um, I like making money. I like that I can afford. A vacation. I can go fly fishing. I like that I can help my children with their children. Um, but you, you don't have to have one without the other. There can be a balance. You know, you have that much money like um, Elon Musk has. And you think, you know, a lot of people could be fed. A lot of people could be fed just in our country with a minor portion of what these men make. It's also that I think uniquely in America, we tend to equate intelligence with wealth. Um, and the truth is a lot of these people are stone cold morons who just yeah. happen to be very, very wealthy or have a, or have a gift in a very specific area that, that translated into to making a lot of money. Absolutely. And but here's the thing. You I, I when I talk to children in the classroom, every child knows what they're good at. And the country, in order to remain great, needs every single thing they can do. You know, some children say to me, I 
am good at making friends. I am good at breathing. I am good at logarithm. I said, well, that makes one of us. But we need everything that they can do. And if Bezos and all of these men, all of this top rarefied tier is good at something, we need that. It just needs also, we need them to share. We need to share uh, with our neighbor. You know, my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, metaphor is a um, natural disaster. And you're on the roof of your house. Everything you own is underwater underneath you. Your life is on the roof. A boat is coming toward you to get you off the, the roof and give you some water. Do you say, how did you vote? What's the color of your skin? I don't think so. I say, you say, oh, yeah, but, but, yeah, please help. I, I, I'm so, I want to get off this roof. You know, uh, what the way we are thinking now, the divide uh, that we have in this country is so destructive. And winning will not keep us the great country we are. The sharing of one another will keep us the great country we are. I had an experience with my kids. Uh, knowing that I was going to do this, my wife and I, we, we placed a bet. And I, we, were, we were driving around. I said, do you think the kids know who Fonzie is? And she, she, didn't, she didn't miss a beat. So absolutely. No chance they, they, they don't. And so we're talking 17 and 18. Have a bunch of them in the car. And I go, Arthur Fonzarelli. Blank, blank, blank stare. Fonzie. So you know who Fonzie is? No. Richie Cunningham. Nope. And, and, but then I asked them about the character that you got that Emmy for over your, over your shoulder. And they knew. Wow. And they, and they, and they, and they loved you. And I found that astonishing that I've lived long enough in a, in American culture, that there's a that there's a generation um, that are driving um, and sneaking out trying to to get beers that have no idea who the Fonz is. And that was fifty years ago. Fifty years. Fifty years. They didn't. They didn't know. They didn't know George Jefferson. They didn't. They didn't know any of these shows that that I think are you know, the indelible shows of an, of an era of American, of an, of American. You, you're, you're growing up America. Yeah, for sure. They have another growing up America. They sure do. You know, sure do. one, yeah. one character that crosses the line is the water boy. Somehow everybody knows the water boy, you know, uh, that has always amazed me how things endure. You know, just I just called, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just called the president of CBS and I said, I have a crazy idea. If, you know, we, we have a strike, you need content. If you put Happy Days, the original Happy Days, on, on an, any night of the week, the children will find it like a duck to water. 
because it's not it's it's set in another time the stories they relate to and children of three would gravitate to the farms at that time the same thing would happen today i i believe it deep in my heart that's smart advice smart advice people people no doubt would watch the show I, I do think, you know, when you talk about kids, um, you know, at 18, I, you know, and I have five, I have, I have three kids, two stepkids, all of the kids at 18 night and all of their friends, none of them, for instance, have watched The Godfather, right? None of them can sit literally, physically. I've accepted this, right? It's, it's not possible for them to sit through a three hour movie wow. and pay attention and, and consume the, and consume the information. And and enjoy it in that in that, that is that is a deep shame, and and that is a deep 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 shame, and 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 all of it is derivative of of these things. Yeah, that zapped their brain. My daughter has finally um, uh, taken screen time and given it a um, uh, given it a. Uh, an amount of time during the day that they're able to. And I think there's one night when there is no screen time whatsoever. Then they have to be a family together and figure out what to do because it was just. Well, it's a great idea. Overwhelming. These these things, these things, these things are the equivalent of uh, cigarettes times 10 uh, for this generation of kids. Me? We don't know enough about the human brain, but the incidences of depression, the increase of suicide, and and this is a not a billion dollar industry. This is a trillion dollar industry, right? And and so this this is one of the most destructive things that has ever been handed to a child in the history of civilization. Um, and so. We're gonna have a lot of we're gonna have a lot of cleanup in aisle six to do um in the in the years ahead about about all of these things. Yeah. I I do want to ask you before we go, talk about Barry ending. Um and 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 it and and I know what you're talking about here. It it might seem strange to someone, you know, that that Henry Winkler's worried about his next gig, what he's what he's gonna do next, but but that's like it's a reality. Any ambitious person? What's what's the reality? Uh, uh, You know, Barry was an amazing thing. I had no idea. I started with six lines on Happy Days, and it grew into this wonderful character. I had, you know, one or two scenes uh, as the acting coach, and then the other characters. Uh, had their pods in the in the stories and the character group. It was enchanting to play Gene Cousineau, especially against Sarah Goldberg, Stephen Root, Bill Hader, my director, creator, and acting partner. I I am just now sad that it's over, that I will not be going back to work with this group behind and in front of the camera. 
two last questions for you. One about television shows, one about movies. You can't put any in to the list that, that you've been in, but but three greatest movies of all time. City of God, The Godfather, you know, and The Sting. Now, the reason I say that is because the 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 City of God is about uh, um, Brazil and about the gangs in Rio de Janeiro. And you have to watch that early in the morning. You can't watch it later in the day because it so stays with you that it will ruin your appetite. Uh, the Godfather, Sting, um, uh, these are movies that when they are playing and you, no matter where you come in and you're walking across the room, you sit down, you watch them to the end. You, it just is they are magnets of entertainment. And they never get old. They never miss. Um, the Philadelphia story, black and white. Unbelievable. Uh, Cary Grant, any of Cary Grant's movies, they are enchanting. The three greatest television series of all time. Well, one is South Korean called Crash Landed Onto You. Crash Landed Onto You. Oh, my God. Um, when I was growing up, I, that's hard, Stephen. That is so hard. The, the that's one... One of the shows that comes to me is All in the Family. And uh, I don't, I, I loved uh, The Lone Ranger, Rin Tin Tin, uh, The Bad Sisters uh, lately, you know, Sharon Horgan from Ireland. But Crash Landed Onto You is unbelievable. Crash landed onto you. We will leave it there. The best TV series of all time with an American icon and an Emmy Award winning actor, a gracious man, a kind man, a gentleman, an American treasure and patriot, Henry Winkler. Thank well, you. I, I want to tell you something. I am so happy I got to spend this time with you, Stephen. Uh, no I know I am a fan of yours. Uh, and I've let you know that and you are just um, so articulate about, uh, you're like a sociologist about what you see in front of you on how we're living. I'll just say, you know, you go through life and you don't expect, uh, if you grew up in North Plainfield, New Jersey, that you're ever going to meet the Fonz. And, um, but when you do meet the Fonz uh, and you discover the man behind him, the man of uh, tremendous grace and graciousness uh, and class and gentleness. What, what you appreciate is if you keep your heart open, your eyes open, you go through life, uh, be grateful for the people that you meet because you're going to meet some extraordinary men and women out there along the way. Thank you, Henry. Thank you.